when all those who had not managed to get away were either dead or wounded, foot soldiers went through the square bayoneting or shooting anybody who was still alive. They had orders that nobody in the square be spared and children and young girls were slaughtered as mercilessly as the many wounded soldiers from other units there. Anti-personnel uh, carriers and tanks then ran backwards and forwards over the bodies of the slain until they were reduced to pulp after which bulldozers moved in to push the remains into piles which were then incinerated by troops with flamethrowers. Incredibly, despite the horrors and the risks, we have witnessed acts of indescribable bravery on our television screens. A lone man standing in front of a row of tanks, the strength of his will, stalling the might of armour as it rolled down a Beijing street. Young people confronting lines of armed troops, not in anger, but in disbelief that an army could unleash force on its own people with such cruelty. Thousands have been killed and injured, victims of a leadership that seems determined to hang on to the reins of power at any cost, at awful human cost. We shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight on the landing grounds, we shall fight in the fields. If you lay down with dogs, you get fleas. Fraud, sham and hypocrisy. Change within the system. The hollow man of anger and bitterness all must be left to a bygone age. I understand victory! I understand sacrifice! Speak over. I may not get there with you. That we as a people will get to the promised land. with Tony Wilson. Hello and welcome and sombre words from a very famous Australian, Robert James Lee Hawke, the longest serving ever Labor Prime Minister of Australia. He was Prime Minister between 1983 and 1991, winning four elections, which also makes him the most successful federal Labor politician in the country's history. That speech is maybe his most famous speech, the tears he shed at the commemoration service a few days after the tragedy at Tiananmen Square in 1989, and he cried in front of the nation and the hundreds of Chinese Australians who had gathered in the foyer of the new Parliament House, and it was a significant speech, a graphic speech that made headlines around the world because no other leader latched on to such graphic detail and that really brings us to the current day newsworthiness of this speech. On a podcast here in Australia called China, If You're Listening, ABC journalist Matt Bevan has investigated the cable that Bob Hawke read from. You may have heard him as he initiated the graphic details. He said, I'd like to read from this piece of paper. Well, the piece of paper was a diplomatic cable. 
and Matt Bevan has done the job of tracking that cable down and getting to the bottom of the fact that Bob Hawke relied on information that was retracted a few days later by the diplomats who sent the initial cable. What had happened is that Australian diplomats had relied on a source who up to that point had been a reliable source and it turned out that on this particular occasion the details of what happened in the square were over-exaggerated. For example, the cable that Bob Hawke was relying on said that 10,000 people were killed in the Tiananmen Square massacre and it's thought that it was either several hundred or in the low 1,000s that actually died. There was also details like bystanders looking out of apartment windows being shot by the army and the army shooting each other if they weren't willing to carry out these orders. So horrific details and excessive details in terms of what turned out to be true. But Bob Hawke didn't know these inaccuracies at the time of the speech, and so he went with the initial cable. He trusted the raw intelligence. And this becomes such a fascinating issue. I mean, I've just been listening to an amazing podcast, highly recommended. I love all the slow burn series of podcasts, which take you step by step through some of the most significant stories in American political history, the Watergate scandal the impeachment dramas of the 1990s but the most recent series has been on the lead up to the Iraq war and the way that the Bush Cheney Rumsfeld team misused raw intelligence to build a an erroneous case for war and it's quite a disturbing series Um, it upset me a lot in terms of what governments are capable of And I think there was some malevolence involved in order to get a particular result. In this case, I don't think there's malevolence involved. In fact, I'm pretty sure that Bob Hawke truly believed that these atrocities had occurred. And let's face it, atrocities had occurred. That's not in doubt with what happened in Tiananmen Square. And so Hawke was rightly horrified. And even if some of the details were overplayed, by the Australian Prime Minister, for example, the tanks rolling back and forth. The Chinese government really had massacred its own youth. The picture he painted and the emotions he felt were real and shared by the country. What he also did in the aftermath of the speech was to make a decision to allow any Chinese students in Australia to extend their visas and many of those in fact most of those students became Australian citizens and it's regarded as a key moment by many members of the Australian Chinese community and Hawke became something of a hero for them. It's worth noting that Bob Hawke's ability to tap into his emotions made him a very popular Prime Minister. He holds the highest ever approval rating of any Australian Prime Minister. I think it was 75% approval in 1984. As I said, he won four elections and several of those were in landslides. He was an unstoppable force politically and he had the knack. Not only was he embarking on an incredibly progressive economic agenda of reform, which included floating the dollar and deregulating the economy, But he also had an ability to connect. There were times when he cried. He cried when he talked about his daughter's battle with addiction. And he could share joy with the country as well. When we won the America's Cup in 1983, he was on national television in a loud jacket declaring that 
any boss who sacks anyone for not turning up today is a bum. And there's a speech that has to go up on Speakola. I think I am a little overdue in producing this episode. The goal is to get one out fortnightly, and my apologies on that front. Lockdowns and school holidays and other jobs have gotten in the way. And this is pretty much a hobby. Uh, This year I have been asking for contributions and some very generous people have stepped up to put a bit of money into the Speakola project. I think there's 19 patrons so far on the Speakola Patreon page, which you can find in the show notes. And thank you so much for the generosity on that front. I really appreciate it. And even just as I'm recording this podcast, a donation came through, just a straight donation came through for $200 from Nicholas Conagrave, which is just incredibly generous. Thanks so much, Nicholas. And there have been others as well who have made straight-out contributions to keeping this podcast going. The places you can do that are patreon.com forward slash speakola or speakola.com forward slash donate. Our special guest for this episode is Stephen Mills. He is a senior lecturer at the School of Social and Political Sciences at the University of Sydney. But before he entered academia, he was Bob Hawke's speechwriter from 1986 to 1991. It was Stephen Mills who wrote the initial draft of the Tiananmen Square response. And so we'll be talking about all that, as well as the whole business of being a prime ministerial speechwriter and the Hawke years generally. So enjoy this one. Stephen Mills. It's my great pleasure to introduce the next guest on the podcast, and we love getting speechwriters on, and this man was the speechwriter for Australian Prime Minister Bob Hawke between 1986 and 1991. His name's Stephen Mills, and I'd like to welcome him him onto the podcast. Thanks, Stephen. Hi, Tony. Good to be here. Tell us how you get that job. How did you become a Prime Minister's speechwriter? (laughs) Well... Not by writing speeches, that's for sure. I I had not written a single speech before I started the job. I was a journalist uh, with The Age newspaper up in the Canberra Bureau, and I left that in, I guess, early 83, just after the election of the Hawke government. I, I got a scholarship to go and study at Harvard in the United States, and I was away for, for two years, came back, you know, newly minted, uh, Master of Public Administration, and then um, found that going back to the age was pretty boring. And so I was not terribly excited about being a journalist again. And then the phone rang, and it was my former journalist colleague, Jeff Walsh, who by then was Hawke's press secretary, who was um, inviting me to come and meet him and meet uh, Hawke because they needed basically to to find uh, another speechwriter to to add to the team. So it was pretty serendipitous. And as I say, I'd, I'd done no speech writing as such, but I guess I was very, well, I was super keen on politics and I was hugely supportive of what I'd seen of Hawke. Very fortunately, we ended up having a a, a good meeting and, a, and, and it was the start of a good relationship for, for five years. So tell us about the first meeting when you walk into a room with the Prime Minister. What was that meeting like? <laughs> You've got no idea. 
I was terribly nervous. This story, I guarantee, is true. But if you go into the old Parliament House now up in Canberra, you can see these kinds of chairs that, that, that are still there. And they're nice little chairs with little wooden arms. And I was sitting down there. Uh, I think Jeff was in the room, but, but he, he just left us to it. So I was sitting opposite the Prime Minister behind his big desk, and I was clinging on to these little wooden chairs with a little arm so tightly that I actually popped the arm out of the out of the leg. I was kind of gripping it so tightly. Uh, he was extremely uh, friendly, put me at ease. He asked me what I'd studied at uni, and he and I said uh, ancient Greek history, <laughs> and he said, "Ah, oh, you should have worked for Goff." <laughs> Which, which was a good line. Bob didn't have a lot of use for classical studies, I guess. Steve, that relates to a previous guest we've had on the podcast. Don Watson said that he once took a call from Gough Whitlam, calling up the Prime Minister's office in the Keating era and saying, look, can you tell your Prime Minister that if you haven't got Latin, don't use Latin? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's very goff, isn't it? That's right. <laughs> yes. Well, the Hawke-Whitlam relationship, I mean, that is the subject of, you know, 27 other podcast uh, topics because it was very complex and f- full of historical ambiguities and, and a certain degree of rivalry, but, but as... I'm not the first person to have noted that one of the things that really motivated Hawke as Prime Minister was that he was not going to be Gough Whitlam, i.e. full of policy crash through and only lasting for a short period of time. Hawke was absolutely determined not to crash out like Whitlam had, but to, you know, now we're in government, we were going to bloody stay in government and we were going to win elections, not chuck them away. And, And that's... That's what he did. So tell us a little bit about 1986 and getting this gig and moving to Canberra and even your first speech. Do you have memories of that? No, I don't remember the first speech. I had lived in Canberra before as a journo and um, have lived there you know, many years since. So that was fine. My um, wife at the time was uh, pregnant with our first child. So it was not like brilliant timing in a family sense, and I just look back on this and think, you know, what a headstrong 32-year-old I was because, you know, I just basically charged off, and as soon as you go into that office, it's like going into the absolute vortex, you know. I don't remember the first speech, but it was it was just insanely busy and insanely like this massively steep learning curve. You know, you had to get used to the fact that the Prime Minister was just, you know, a couple of metres down the corridor behind that door, and here was this amazing collection of highly talented and very funny and very committed, diverse bunch of, I'm going to say they're mostly guys, you know, the senior advisors, and yet it was a workspace, you know, so you had to sit at the typewriters as it was then, and uh, I, I did a lot of my drafting in, you know, handwriting as well and you just basically had to sit there and start cranking it out the workload is quite intense i don't know i think i did 700 speeches or something over the over the five years and so i was buggered by the end of it that's for sure 
Oh, you would be. Yeah. And what's the procedure? Like, if you, even if you think of a particular speech, how, how does it come to you? Does it? Um, I remember Barry Cassidy was in there. He was one of the media blokes. Mm-hmm. I mean, who's who's briefing and who's giving you the instructions, or does it vary each time? Well, I'll tell you a, a, an early process, which was really, really great, and it was in the lead up to the eighty-seven election. It wasn't my. Uh, first speech by any means, but it was very early on in the process, and it was the Light on the Hill speech, which was an annual speech delivered in honour of Ben Chifley out at the Bathurst, I think it was then the College of Advanced Education, now now, now Charles Sturt Uni, and it was a big labour event, and unusually for a hawk speech, it had an immense amount of discussion across the whole office, including Hawke himself, and there were a couple of couple of very great meetings that we'd had uh, in advance of, of that where basically it was a made explicit the whole tension in 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 the government at that stage which is well it's a Ben Shifley speech so is the speech going to be reaffirming labor's values and visions versus on the other hand is it going to be about this big reform project that the Hawke Labor government had underway, the economic liberalisation and uh, economic budget and industrial relations reforms that were absolutely essential to Hawke that he'd kicked off with the summit and, you know, was at the accord and, and was carrying through. And, and some of the advisors were urging Hawke to use the speech as an opportunity to speak to Labor faithful what we would call the base these days, and others were saying, well, you've got this reform uh, agenda, and Hawke was definitely on the side of that, and and I do recall in this meeting, he basically said, um, uh, he said, fuck the past. We've got to basically move on into the future. And it was, it was a really powerful moment, and indeed the speech that we finally produced, of course it, it paid tribute to Ben Chifley, a great Labor Prime Minister, and and did speak in great tribute to, well, especially the union movement, reflecting Hawke's own background. But he was telling them that there is, there's been change and there's more change on the way. So it was a really, I think, important marker in the lead up to that um, 87 election, which against all of the odds, Hawke won. And enabled him to continue that um, that labor reform program presumably Stephen that that speech was referred to as the fuck the past speech um, is that how he opened the, those three words <laughs> that didn't make it through that that that, 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 that was a kind of uh, uh, underpinning of it but it didn't make it through to the final to the final cut he, 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 he said fuck the past or the past will fuck you that was the full thing that he said in this meeting oh and, you know, if you want it in a nutshell of what that guy was about in terms of the reform initiative, that's what it was. So don't get him to go along and worship at the shrine of Ben Chifley and do nothing more. You know, it was culling the sacred cows. That's what it was. There were lots of sacred cows there and he wasn't going to, he was going to slaughter some of them in order to get the economy going and get Labor back in office you know, for the next for the next term, quite courageous. What did you think of him as a speaker? As a speaker, he was, I think, like like anybody, 
he was better off the cuff than with a text in front of him. Uh, this is a person whose background was in the Arbitration Commission as a barrister, arguing with judges against other barristers in in a court system. So his style of speaking, so that's where it it, it got the uh, kind of hectoring style, but it's also where he got his insistence as a speaker on having data. Like Hawke was an economist uh, before he was a, a, an advocate. He was an economist. So he really wanted data in his speeches. And when it came to be prime minister, you know, we would spend a lot of time getting data on Australia's economic performance, on the performance of uh, the education system, on wages data, uh, on trade data, productivity, you know, because this was all part of, it was essential for Hawke to have all of that, to include it in a speech so that he wasn't just kind of waffling. He would never waffle. He would much prefer to present an argument. And it's not drawing too long a bow to say that when he was Prime Minister, he was still, as it were, presenting the case to the arbitration commissioners, except he was presenting the case to the voters, that this is what the Labor government, his government, was doing in the reform process, and this is the data. These are the facts. This is showing the progress we've made. So to answer your question, he was a, a, a terrific speaker when he was in full flight with this argument that he was carrying in his head and in his heart. And it was the same, as I say, in the Arbitration Commission, uh, but it was the same if he was talking back in the, his union days to a, a union stop work meeting. Or it was the same if he was talking to a ACTU Congress or uh, a Labor Party Congress. That was the that was the background that he had. So he was a big public speaker. That meant he wasn't in really any good in Parliament. He was never a great speaker in Parliament, and he was probably not a great speaker with a text in front of him. Very few people are. We didn't have auto cues in those days, and you would have been laughed at if you'd had an auto cue. So it was all paper based. We would make these. A speech script for him with with kind of large print oh, forget what the font is but it's a particular kind of font where it all comes out in capitals uh, and it was probably you'd say a 20 point or something like that so so that he could read it easily without having to constantly keep his head buried you know in a piece of paper you don't want to see a politician talking to the audience and coming over as if he doesn't know what he wants to say or coming over as if he's reliant on some scrap of paper. You see people doing that these days and you just think, God, you know, how yeah, amateur. Yeah, yeah. It was always it was always head up, it was always looking out, but obviously using the script to keep him going. And Stephen, um, the podcast doesn't offer that much advice on speaking, but when we do, we should point it out. I think it's almost the best tip for if you're if you're going to read the big font, is the absolute key. I go eighteen myself, mm. but eighteen twenty point type. It's the it's, it's it gives you a chance to get the eyes up. Yes, yeah, and that is that's absolutely essential. Not even if you're a politician, but if you if you're talking to a, a work 
function or uh, you know a family function you want to have the piece of paper there you know as a bit of reassurance i guess but don't read it because it looks like you don't know what you're going to say mm. <laughs> you know? and it looks so so yeah. false and fake um and and hawk was never that that's for sure so yeah heads up look at the audience look around the audience they're they're listening to you they want you to succeed that's not always the case in politics and Stephen, I guess Labor's most famous speechwriter, both uh, in the seventies and eighties, was Graham Freudenberg. Yeah. Was, was he was he still hanging around the office and writing speeches with you or for Hawke uh, when you were in the office? Oh yes, yeah, very much, very much. So Freud had started with Hawke uh, in the eighty three campaign and in government. I don't think I'm speaking out of school to say that. You know, as as a as a, he was also still, uh, I believe, working for Neville Rand at the time. The, the the workload was too great for for one person to do. That's why I came on board. And Graham's specialisation was the big number. You know, the the big Labor Party speeches, and and so we had a pretty good division of labour. I, I we, we I was full of myself back then, Tony, I have to say, and I didn't, at the start, I was, I was very rivalrous with Graham, and he was probably a bit threatened by me as well, and we didn't have a great relationship at the start, and there was a lot of, I think that was recognised in the office, we used to joke about it later, it was, it was the, Graham said it was like the old bull and the young bull in the same paddock. Um, yeah. And of course, as speechwriters, we were both very well equipped with the task of producing bullshit. <laughs> uh, so, you know, he, I, I was, you know, I as I've said before, I, I had written zero speeches. Freud had written a million. And I had, you know, freshly minted Harvard graduate. And I felt as though I was totally ready f- to to grapple with this job and you know i uh, i we, we would we would share drafts i would dare to edit some of freud's works and make them clearer what i thought and 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 he he didn't probably appreciate that terribly much so we had a few arguments creative tensions what do you call it but i have to say it didn't take long um, and we, we ended up having an absolutely brilliant and, and a very deep, a, a brilliant working relationship and a very deep friendship. And um, I'm starting to get a little bit sore in the throat now as I'm thinking because he's obviously gone from us now. But um, he was a, a great Labor speechwriter. He is the top of the pile not just in speech writing, but also as a Labor historian, as a historian of the Whitlam government, and also his memoirs are just quite wonderful. So, you know, a great, um, a great Australian writer, and um, yeah, we miss him. In terms of the storytelling element and the ability to find phrases, and what what is the essential task? If you had to say to someone in thirty seconds, what makes the great political speech, that the thing that makes someone like Graham Freudenberg a legend, what is it? I, I couldn't do it in 30 seconds, Tony. 
because there's too many different types of speeches and this is this is going to be too simple right so I'll I'll say it and then I'll want to qualify it but Freud wrote poetry and I wrote prose a hawk needed the prose for all of the stuff that I just said before about his he, he wanted to carry the argument the economic argument and the political argument about what was going on now you know in the economy and in the country that kind of approach was one of the reasons why the hawk government succeeded because it kept at this argument long term so different from politics today where they drop in and out of a topic you know once yeah. oh you know we'll do energy this week you know yeah. um hawk and also keating and also the other ministers john button they kept at this economic reform agenda for eight freaking years right they didn't relent that's why the speech writing was was an important element obviously it was in other areas as well but the speeches actually did lay out this case and and i'm going to say that's that's a prose kind of approach i don't think i was a great wordsmith i i i think i was right for hawk but freud is more poetical more elevated language especially with whitlam now you're going to say well whitlam was full of facts and data and policy and platform as well and of course he was so you know i'm i'm oversimplifying here with hawk didn't do that poetic aspirational stuff very well i think keating did it well um better than than bob but anyway so so there were two types of speeches the american style of speech writing is more that poetical style ask not and all of that kind of stuff you know when peggy noonan wrote a speech for ronald reagan after the challenger uh, space shuttle exploded and it was a very beautiful speech but had a similar kind of event happened in australia it would have been i think quite inappropriate it was australia would have wanted more facts and more solid feel about it not this ethereal kind of farewell into the into the into the sunset kind of stuff that reagan produced so that's that that's as a sorry that's a lot more than 30 seconds but what i saw my job as doing was to help hawk carry his argument uh the argument of the government all the way through for years you know as the as the economy changed and as the politics changed that argument just kept on coming they were solid solid speeches and and that's 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 what he liked most of the time it's interesting that you say that Stephen because when I first started this speak all a website which compiles great speeches I I sort of noticed after a couple of years that I had speeches from Whitlam and I had speeches from Keating but I didn't have as many speeches from Hawke and, and probably the truth is right there which is that a lot of the speeches though important were driving this kind of economic story that just doesn't grab the heart in the same way as immigration stories do and the indigenous narrative does and 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 even you know the pulling the working class up by the bootstraps type speeches as well you know and and that's and that's probably why they were missing 
Yeah, look, uh, if if you want emotional uplift, Hawke's probably not your man. Although, again, there are exceptions. I can think of, like, he did the formal ceremonial speeches very well, um, the international speeches, the opening of the new Parliament House. Of course, he did the Gallipoli, what was it, 75th anniversary of the landings. Graham did... Graham Freudenberg did the, and it's a beautiful, beautiful speech that Hawke delivered magnificently at the beach for the dawn service in 1990. So to the extent that he was emotional, uh, and he was obviously an extremely emotional human being as leader, they were probably not expressed in his speeches. And so there were there were press conferences, there were uh, the last press conference that he gave after he'd been rolled by Keating in 1991, it, 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 it was a kind of informal event in Parliament House, and he he spoke uh, uh, off the cuff there about Aboriginal reconciliation and treaty making. And if you could find that one, you would find a hawk who can... Well, who's he feeling sorry for? Is he feeling sorry for himself? Probably, but he's feeling sorry as, uh, about this massively important aspect of Australian politics on the agenda that he had not been able to take forward. And and it's a pretty pretty great one if you can find that one. I'll, I'll definitely look that look for that one. On on the question of emotional speeches, I guess I wanted to feature one that has been in the news in recent weeks here in Australia, and that is the speech on the 9th of June, 1989. It was the it was a speech at the memorial service after Tiananmen Square massacre, yeah. and you had a strong involvement in that speech, Stephen? Yes, yes I did, um, although the um, the kind of evolution of the speech and the delivery of the speech had a few twists and turns. But um, I remember it well. It was a commemorative event held in Parliament by the Parliament. And it was the new Parliament House, right? So June of 89, we'd only been in there for 12 months or so. It was in the Great Hall. I forget, hundreds of people turned up, Chinese-Australians in particular, and it was just a few days after after the Tiananmen Square massacre where the People's Liberation Army had been ordered into Beijing and into that square and, and, and um, massacred the students who'd been building a protest site there for a couple of weeks. The commemorative service... I, I don't remember the circumstances. I don't remember who was organising the commemorative event. But, but looking back, just preparing for our conversation today, looking back at the draft that I produced, and and, and I should say, instead of saying I produced, that that we produced. You know, all of these speeches that that I ended up kind of assembling were great collaborations with other members of this highly skilled Prime Minister's office. And and this particular draft has got a lot of input from John Bowen, who was Hawke's foreign policy advisor. So looking at that draft now, you know, I see that it's it's kind of short, it's dignified, it's very pointed, 
We were explicit about the violence that had happened, explicit in support of the democracy movement, the protesting students, explicit about the need for reform, explicitly critical of the leadership. So it was a, I don't think it was a bad speech, but of course it was trumped by events that occurred immediately before Hawke delivered the speech. Uh, and I was not involved in this meeting, but he was uh, meeting with advisors and, and, and was in possession of the diplomatic cables that had come in, I guess, from Australian diplomats uh, in Beijing who'd observed this army massacre, ob- observed it or, or heard firsthand accounts of, of what had happened and who sent reports back to Canberra as part of their reporting job describing what had happened. So raw intelligence, Hawke read it uh, in this meeting and he said, look, uh, he, he, he must have decided that it was so powerful and it was so important that Australians and the world hear exactly what had happened because even then you know the the kind of cover-up story was starting to come from China and and there'd been there'd been vision uh, TV footage famous um, shopping bag man in front of the tank and so forth uh, which were referred to in the speech but anyway so Hawke uh, had these cables and then he did what he he, he, he did a great thing which was to take the draft that I'd given him, and then just a couple of paragraphs in where 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 my draft had a couple of um, references to unarmed young men and women being sprayed with bullets and, and crushed by tanks. Well, he, he he dropped that, and instead he just started reading the reports from these diplomatic cables. And and Stephen, I normally play the speech of the week at the end of the episode, but given this is the only extant audio of this speech i thought i'd play it now because this is the cable bit Mm -hmm. um that your bit has existed and it's a very forceful and as you say quite beautiful statement of australia's support of the students and critical of the regime but then he goes bang with this uh highly emotional and descriptive passage Mm -hmm. tenement the troops who first arrived attempted to drive the people away A last warning was given and the students prepared to leave. But within five minutes, the anti-personnel carriers of the 27th entered the square, firing their machine guns as they came. Foot soldiers went through the square, bayoneting or shooting anybody who was still alive. They had orders that nobody in the square be spared and children and young girls were slaughtered as mercilessly as the many wounded soldiers from other units there. Anti-personnel carriers and tanks then ran backwards and forwards over the bodies of the slain until they were reduced to pulp, after which bulldozers moved in to push the remains into piles which were then incinerated by troops with flamethrowers. So, Stephen, it's it's an incredible 
snippet of audio and it shows a man so emotionally devastated by what's gone on and it had wide-ranging impacts in Australia, particularly with the Chinese community and, and I think a feeling of being embraced by the country. It's recently been reported by Matt Bevan, who's an ABC reporter uh, with China, if you're listening. He says that the cable was written by an Australian diplomat by the name of Richard Rigby and that after a few days they became aware that the informant that gave the information that went into the cable that that information had proved to be incorrect did you did you were you an ear at all to what was going on with this cable uh no no i i've i've heard this these recent reports but at the time there was no reason to doubt the um, accuracy and validity of the cable it's graphic details seem to be supported uh, and i have to say that to a very large extent the, the the tenor and thrust of those cables have proven to be accurate i think some of the particularly gruesome details that are referred to turn out to have been not quite so gruesome well, you know right so i mean I, th I think there's a bit of revisionism going on insofar as oh you know this was hawk just indulging himself and bursting into tears and and then you know exercising some kind of a personal preference to personally admit the um, tens of thousands of Chinese Australian students well to extend their visas and then you know uh, they've finally went on to full citizenship and, and that this was some kind of an indulgence by Hawke and I think that narrative is wrong I think this was a situation of so two things. One, one is it represented a, a fundamental shift in what was going on in China and this crackdown by, by Li Ping, the butcher of Beijing. From an Australian point of view, so, so it was a huge global story, but it had a particular Australian resonance and it had a particular resonance for this Labor government and for this Labor prime minister uh, because he had, in fact, really seen the potential of the China relationship in terms of economic trade and investment, in terms of he invented this word enmeshment. I don't think it existed before, but the enmeshment of the Australian economy with that of China, particularly our iron ore exports to fuel their steel industry. And you have to say he was reasonably right on that back in the early 1980s, because that's, that's, that's basically what's paying for our breakfast uh, still today. But you know, it wasn't just an economic relationship. Hawke saw this as a, as a hugely important political relationship he thought that Australia and China saw eye to eye on a lot of things, which was uh, interesting. That So it was important mutually. He thought that we could help introduce China to the rest of the world. And I think China, for its point of view, saw Australia as this very interesting kind of experiment that it could have to learn how to deal with, you know, Western democracies. It didn't know much about Europe or, and obviously had had um, a long way to go before it was challenging the United States. But we were, a, you know, a good enough size and we certainly seem to be open. So, so I mean, how things have changed. But at the time, China saw benefit in having a dialogue with Australia. It wasn't just Australia seeing benefit in flogging iron ore to China, you know. So, obviously, all of that was, once it came to an end, but it was, it was, it was threatened by this enormously perilous massacre and the reality that that would be 
extremely bad news for uh, Chinese in China and for Chinese Australians if they return to China. So the tears were real and not prompted only, well, they were triggered by the contents of the cable, but but they were tears for a, a bigger loss, I think. So all of that to respond to the 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 kind of revelations or uh, about the particular contents of the cables, and and Matt Bevan's source in relation to Hawks' knowledge in relation to the cables was in fact Blanche Dapage herself, um, Hawks' biographer, and subsequently his second wife. Um, and Blanche said exactly the same thing, which is to say that the devastation was absolutely real. He was devastated for basically for two reasons one was the horrendous uh the horrendous reports of the loss of life but the other uh, very important thing was he saw it was it would be a disaster for china matt bevan in his report played a little bit of audio of an interview that he did with richard rigby who said basically that the motivations of the informant might have been political, that there was a power struggle going on within the Chinese government. Crucial core thing of what happened actually in the square itself was not correct. And we heard that quite quickly within a matter of days, uh, directly from the mouth of Ho De Jen, one of the leading, uh, well, the guy, the guy who helped negotiate the peaceful withdrawal of most of the students from the square. And he was the dissident who came and uh, was given shelter in our embassy. Were you surprised that this informant got that uh, those details about what was in what happened in the square wrong? And do you have any insight as to why that informant may have got that wrong? I mean, I think that he thought that he was telling the truth. Right. It was the sort of stuff that a lot of other people that we were talking to again in the immediate aftermath were were saying. You know, I, I cannot entirely rule out the possibility that we were being fed some sort of a line. Right. Because although he was, as we say in the cable, closely connected with quite senior people within the Chinese government, the whole incident occurred because there was this very serious, literally life and death power struggle going on at the highest levels of the Chinese government. And uh, he would, of course, be reflecting the views and the hopes and the fears of one particular group, uh, the group, the group that lost out. So there would be a, a vested interest in conveying as bad a picture as possible of what the people on the other side of this pastoral were doing and were responsible for. I mean, it's absolutely clear that there was a huge power struggle going on in the Chinese leadership at the time. I mean, it's it's forgotten, but in, in April of 89, so, you know, the whole protest movement, wouldn't say it was triggered by, but but it had been given great impetus by the fact that in April, Hu Yaobang had died and he, was, he had been the great reformer and his death allowed, I guess, the Li Pings and, and his ilk to strengthen their hold. Look, I, I'm not a... A Beijingologist, so I, I, I haven't got any um, great insights, any even minor insights into what was going on, other than that it would be 
I think, highly likely in the wake of a kind of major traumatic event like this massacre for there to be all sorts of rumours. And, well, he's basically saying misinformation. I I don't know. Um, That must have been the call that he made um, when when he wrote the cable. And I think the correcting the correcting cable came three days later, according to what Blanche told the seven thirty report. But she also told the seven thirty report that Bob Hawke had no regrets about what he said. And as I said in the book about Bob, this was raw intelligence, and raw intelligence always needs to be corrected afterwards. Did Bob regret having read those details out so publicly at the memorial service, given that they ended up? Uh, at least some of them ended up being retracted by the embassy? Not that he ever said so. We didn't talk about that because the point about that was, and it was when he wept, he didn't set out to do this, but the good thing that came out of that was that many Australians who hadn't realised how deep his humanitarian feelings and compassion was suddenly realised that he was a genuine humanitarian. Mm. And when I say people, I also, of course, include the Chinese. For them, it was a very extraordinary experience to see a white man crying for them. Yeah, I don't think Hawke would ever have felt, oh, gosh, you know, I've over, over-egged this. You know, I better, I, you know I'm going to need to correct the historical record. On, on that, I, I, I mean, Blanche would know better, but uh, I would strongly endorse that. Um, there's never, there's no evidence that Hawke ever regretted having said what he said in the way that he said it and using the information that he used. And it should be said, in terms of the excesses of the cable, and, and Richard Rigby did say there were sections of it that they backed away from. For example, the cable said that 10,000 people died and it turned out it wasn't as many as that. And the cable also said that civilians were being shot in their windows as they watched on. And that also seems to be incorrect. Um, the bit, I guess, that was controversial was the backing forward mm. and, uh, you know, the the rolling backwards and forwards over bodies, which was just such a, a, a visceral and... And horrible image for people listening to the speech. And and I guess that's the bit that might have been slightly over the top. But then what we know about the Tiananmen Square massacre is not very much because this was a, a secretive regime and it still doesn't speak about Tiananmen Square and, 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 and so we don't really know what went on in that in that square. Yeah, I suppose the it's a particularly gothic kind of image of the armoured vehicles going backwards and forwards. I I don't know much about the military, but I would have thought that in what is basically a military operation like this, that you wouldn't order your units to engage in that. I mean, that's just so unnecessary. What they were doing was killing people and clearing the square. The idea that the drivers were acting, drivers of those vehicles were acting in some kind of a sadistic way probably is inconsistent with what we know about how the PLA and militaries generally operate and it you know go back to the earlier point I don't think I don't think that takes anything away from the substance of the fact that this was a brutal massacre many hundreds and probably thousands of people were killed and as you say it's something which the Chinese themselves have have um, increasingly cracked down on I mean it's so tragic we see in 
Hong Kong today. I mean, remember in 1989, Hong Kong's separation from Britain and return to China was still eight years into the future. Uh, that took place in 1997. But who would have thought that, you know, so quickly by 2020, Hong Kong is basically being cracked down on mm. pretty much in the umbrella movement and the students pretty much and the democracy movement pretty much cracked down on to the same extent as happened in Beijing, but without the use of military force. Maybe that's a lesson that they've learnt. It's so disappointing to, to be talking about the Tiananmen Square massacre and the response of the then Australian government to that. It's so disappointing to note the tepid response of the Australian government now to what's happened in Hong Kong. Oh, I couldn't agree more. We had Brian Leung on the podcast talking about his speech. He was the unmasked protester mm-hmm. in the Hong Kong um, Legislative Council. He stood up and tore his mask off and spoke at enormous risk to himself mm. and gave a, a beautiful and moving protester speech there and did, did a whole episode of the podcast on that. And as you say, it's just a, a marked difference between the response to Hong Kong 2020 and uh, China, 1989. Well, ju- I mean, they're just so brave, courageous. Same in Myanmar, you know, same in spots of Eastern Europe, just so brave. And they are actually pro-democracy. You know, that's all they are. It's not, and, and for us in a democracy, in a parliamentary democracy, for us to sit idly by, pretty much idly, and, and watch democracy supporters being uh, incarcerated, probably, you know, killed, um, certainly taken out of the system and, and, and um, their aspirations denied. We, we really are not going to build a future world that is what we want to build, that, that looks like uh, something where, where, where humanity will prosper if we don't say more and express more uh, and, and stand up more for our values that those Hong Kong protesters were, were so beautifully and, and bravely uh, ex- expounding. It's a, it's a tragedy. And Stephen, your speech was a beautiful speech and you had some of that sentiment in there towards the back end of the speech talking about the power of democracy. Um, You wrote, It is my sincere hope and indeed my resolute conviction that the values and aspirations of those who have been so brutally repressed over the past week will eventually triumph, that the death and suffering will not have been in vain, that the path of reform and modernisation will be renewed. Well, we, we meet here, that's, that's uh, Lincoln, and in vain is, um, will not have been in vain, is both Gettysburg. I, I, they stand out like dog's balls to me now, but um, maybe it was unconscious. But it's interesting, isn't it? How often did you draw on the great speeches? Do, do, is it, sort of, do you see a template sometimes if you know great political speech as well? Um, rarely, rarely. For election campaign speeches... You certainly like there's a there's a template there's not a template but for an election campaign launch th- there are certain things that must be done and there's only a few ways you can do it equally for a commemorative service like this memorial ceremony for those killed in China the the template of the Gettysburg Address is so powerful because it's very short but it does everything in it that 
that um, really it, it's hard to memorialise without, in some ways, I think here subconsciously, I, I don't recall, you, you know, it, it being an explicit reference that we were trying to make, but the, the we meet here's, uh, which we say two or three times, three times, that's very Lincoln, and uh, will not have been in vain is very Lincoln as well. So there are some uh, echoes there for sure. I've forgotten the details of this until until I, I saw the the draft. I, I also think I'm, I'm happy with the the ending, and I suspect that it's a John Bowenism, uh, the foreign affairs advisor. Hawke says, "I call on the Chinese government to withdraw its troops from deployment against unarmed civilians and respect the will of its people. To crush the spirit and body of youth is to crush the very future of China itself." That's how the speech ended, and I think it was a good ending, strong, very, very Hawkean in its identification of youth with the future of the country and the future of, yeah. of the relationship. Oh, it's a great ending and, and a, a really beautiful speech, and congratulations to you. I mean, it becomes famous because of the cable and, and the crying, it, but, but it would have stood as a strong and, and significant speech, I think, even without that. Yeah, who, who knows? Certainly it was good for... It, it was directed to that immediate audience in the Great Hall, hundreds of people there, all of them pretty traumatised by having heard these reports, I think. So it, So it was providing some official recognition of their grief and, 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 and shock and, and, you know, trauma. But it was also, it had a, a significant national message to, to, to other Australians and also to China itself. So, you know, these things, when you're writing for the Prime Minister, you're, you're well, <laughs> a Prime Minister speaks at many levels you know, to many different audiences, not just the ones who are in the room. And um, I think this one does it reasonably well. But, you know, it would have been forgotten were it not for Hawke's brilliant improvisation and a brilliant capacity to reveal his emotions and, and put those emotions to positive policy use, to to share the emotions of, that, that were being felt in the room uh, and then you know, in the mm. immediate aftermath to take these decisions uh, about visa extensions and to ensure that the Australian community was big enough to accommodate these Chinese Australian students who would otherwise have been forced to go home. That, that, that's what made the speech. It was Hawke's brilliant improvisation and his capacity to use those emotions, to express those emotions and to, and to direct them. And in terms of the decision to allow the students to stay, I, I did put at the bottom of the Speakola article that that was made without consultation, that he didn't go to Cabinet. It was it was a purely a Hawke decision. Is that right? No, he did go to Cabinet. Well, it was a, it was a Hawke decision. And look, I don't remember the details, Tony, I'm sorry, but uh, my recollection is that possibly even later that day, certainly in the next couple of days, Hawke basically announced that this is what was going to happen, that these visas would be extended, and then it was later ratified at Cabinet. So it's not actually a decision that a Prime Minister can 
can can make. You know, prime ministers don't have visa extension forms on their desk, uh, so it did require cabinet approval. But such was Hawke's leadership. Well, that was that was how he rolled. You know, I mean, he had a very strong cabinet, and famously, you know, individual ministers were given a lot of leeway. But equally, when the prime minister decided that something needed to be done, well, then cabinet would say, okay, prime minister, we'll go with you. And that's what happened on this occasion. Uh, and there's been a 7.30 report story done on the diplomatic cable and the insertion of the cable into the speech and the fact that other countries didn't go with it. And and one of the people interviewed in that report was Craig Emerson. And I, and I thought Craig Emerson was was really moving on the question of the the students who stayed. And there was there's a beautiful story he related, and here it is. The Chinese-Australian community never forgot it uh, so much uh, so that um, the day after, the morning in fact, after Bob passed away, uh, there was a knock on the door uh, at his home at Northbridge. My partner answered the door thinking it might be a family member or perhaps someone from the media and it was a man uh, who had been a student at that time and uh, brought flowers and said sorry but but sent the most heartfelt uh, letter uh, saying you have given us a beautiful life thank you Bob we love you what a significant time and what a significant figure Bob Hawke is in Australian history how do you feel about the time was it was it a really special time of your life Stephen oh yeah absolutely it was the best job I've ever had. I did go back to journalism afterwards and then into corporate public affairs and then into academia. And so I've, I've, I've kind of knocked around a bit, but it was um, the best job I've ever had. He was a wonderful person to work for at a personal level, but I was burnt out. I, I was really shot at the end of it. Uh, in 1991, well, we had two little kids. You know, I'd asked a lot of my family to support me and, and and I was pretty finished as well so I I remember my last meeting that I had with Hawk and um, and I thanked him and I said you know I felt as though I'd arrived in his office as a boy and I was leaving as a man uh, and I think that's um, I think that's true it, it was it was a great job in so many ways and exposed me and allowed me to make a little contribution to a government which I think is still, and a Prime Minister who, um, you know, the longer we move away in time from that period, uh, it looks better and better, I must say. So I'm really um, delighted and content. You tend to kind of gloss over a lot of these things. Talking about Freud before, you know, I mean, it's not an easy job to do, this political advising, and you're only doing it when you're getting like knocked around and if if you're if you're if you're coasting you're not doing it so it was it was hard work and we had great discussions i mean there were we haven't talked about some of the other people in the office but craig emerson very strong uh, bob sorby was the political advisor wonderful guy chris conabare uh, at the time was the principal private secretary uh, john bowen i've mentioned you know there were there were others as well really really strong great characters and highly collaborative you know when you're working for i think this has gone from politics these days but i certainly felt when i was working for hawk working in that 
environment that it was um, like we were all there for him. We weren't there for ourselves. <laughs> you wouldn't be doing this for yourself. We were there for him. And, you know, we would have these discussions, but there was no personality or there, there was very little ego in it, I think. hope I'm not having tickets on ourselves, but, you know, I think there was very little ego about it because we just had to, we were really aware that Hawke was relying on us and that, you know, if we provided him with good stuff, well, then he would go on, be, be enabled the better to, to go on and, and lead our country. So that's a rare opportunity, isn't it? Uh, it's an incredible opportunity. And uh, thank you so much for sharing your memories of the time and your memories of the Tiananmen Square response speech. It's been fascinating, and I really appreciate you coming on the podcast, Stephen. Thanks, Tony. It's been a pleasure. I've just looked at the Tinder page of my friend, the Greenskin Avocado, and it says this, I don't go brown when cut. I always look good. I don't change colour as I ripen. I have a firm, buttery flesh, ideal for slicing and dicing in salads, wraps, and as the hero in any meal. Make Greenskin Avocados the hero in your next meal. Greenskin Avocados are the result of a green love affair pre-Tinder. According to greenskinavocados.com.au, we first met some 30 years ago and it was love at first sight. Exquisite, green, elongated. Make Greenskin Avocados the champion of your next salad. Greenskinavocados.com.au. For the speech of the week, I mentioned it during the interview, but the entirety of the Tiananmen Square response speech hasn't survived. It's really just the sections that I've read a couple of times, the sections that were read from the cable, which made the news media. And it seems amazing in the digital age that they just threw these tapes out, but they did. And so there's no full version of the speech. And I wasn't going to do a speech of the week, but then Stephen Mills mentioned in the interview that he loved Bob Hawke's 75th anniversary speech on the beaches of Gallipoli. And I thought, why not do that one? I'll track that one down. And, and it was there on YouTube in a 7.30 report hosted by Paul Lynham. Beautiful footage, too, of veterans watching the Prime Minister speak. And beautiful words written by the great Labor speechwriter, Graham Freudenberg, delivered by Bob Hawke, 25th of April, 1990. Veterans, distinguished guests... The landings on Gallipoli 75 years ago were followed by eight months of untold sacrifice and suffering which were to claim the lives of more than 100,000 men of the armies of Turkey, Germany, France, Britain, India, Canada, New Zealand and Australia. No place on the Gallipoli Peninsula was more fiercely contested than these few acres where we now stand. Known to the Anzacs, who captured it as Lone Pine, and to the Turkish soldiers who defended it to the last as the Ridge of Blood. In three days of literally hand-to-hand -hand combat in August 1915, more than 2,000 Australians and 5,000 Turks died here. And seven 
of the nine Victoria Crosses awarded to Australians at Gallipoli were won here. In a unique act of honour to fallen foes, the people and the government of Turkey have dedicated this ground as a memorial to the 8,700 Australians who died on Gallipoli. In making this pilgrimage today, we first pay the tribute of honour to the fallen of Turkey, fighting on their own soil, dying in defence of their homeland, inspired by the indomitable leadership of a man of destiny, Mustafa Kemal, known to history as Kemal Ataturk. My friends, let it be said at once, for us, the people of Australia and New Zealand, the heirs to Anzac, the meaning of Gallipoli can never be measured by mere numbers of the slain. In those terms, Gallipoli was but an initiation to the killing fields of France and of Flanders. And let it be said also that none of us come here to glorify war. For us, no place on earth more grimly symbolises the waste and the futility of war, this scene of carnage in a campaign which failed. It is not the waste of war in which Australians find the meaning of Gallipoli, then or now. And I say then or now for a profound reason. For the meaning of the Anzac tradition forged in the fires of Gallipoli must be learned anew from generation to generation. Its meaning can endure only as long as each new generation of Australians finds the will to reinterpret it, to breathe, as it were, new life into the old story and in separating the truth from the legend, realise its relevance to a nation and to a people, experiencing immense change over the past three quarters of a century. And in the continuing quest for the real meaning of Anzac, our way is lit by the shining presence here today of this small band of the first Anzacs who have returned. This is for all of us here and for all of our fellow Australians at home, an honour, an experience, an emotion which goes beyond all words. But these men here, they know the truth of Gallipoli. They would be the last to claim that they were heroes, but indeed they were. They did not pretend to fathom the deep and the immense tides of history which brought them to these shores at the crossroads of civilization, so far from home and so far from all they knew and that they loved. They did not see themselves as holding in their hands the destiny of six mighty empires, all now vanished, nor could they begin to imagine that the vast and terrible forces unleashed upon the world in 1914 would still be working their way through human history 75 years on. But if they knew not those things, they did know two things. First, that they had a job to do 
and they knew that in the end they could only rely on each other to see it through. They knew that they depended on their mates. The official Australian war historian Charles Bean expresses it in this way, and I quote him, to be the sort of man who would give way when his mates were trusting to his firmness, to be the sort of man who would fail when the line, when the whole force and the cause required his endurance, to have made it necessary for another unit to do his own unit's work, that was the one prospect which these men could not face. Standing upon that alone, when help failed and hope faded, when the end loomed clear in front of them, when the whole world seemed to crumble and the heaven to fall in, they faced its ruin undismayed. In that recognition of the special meaning of Australian mateship, the self-recognition of their dependence upon one another, these Australians, by no means all of them born in Australia, drawn from every walk of life and different backgrounds, cast upon these hostile shores 12,000 miles from home, there in that mateship lay the genesis of the Anzac tradition. And at the heart of that tradition lay a commitment. It was a simple but a deep commitment to one another, each to his fellow Australian. And in that commitment, I believe, lies the enduring meaning of Anzac then and today and in the future. It is that commitment now as much as ever. Now, with all the vast changes occurring in our nation more than ever, it is that commitment to Australia which defines and alone defines what it is to be an Australian. That commitment is all. When the order was given for the evacuation from Gallipoli in December 1915, it is recorded that many of the Australians expressed their grief at leaving the graves of so many thousands of their mates in hostile hands. One of them said, I hope they don't hear us going down the gullies. In all the story of heroism and human waste that was Gallipoli, nothing is more honourable than the custodianship of this hallowed ground by the people and the government of Turkey for 75 years. Australia does not forget that the going down of the sun and in the morning, we will remember them. That's it, Speech Lovers, for another episode. Thank you so much to our special guest, Stephen Mills. He wrote The Hawk Years, and he's written a whole lot of other books as well for Black Ink. So check out his author profile there. Thanks to you, Barry Cassidy, who worked with Stephen in Bob Hawke's Prime Ministerial Office, and it was Barry who gave me Stephen's contact details. He knew that Stephen had written the initial drafts of the speech. I want to say a big thank you to the Patreon subscribers and the straight-out donors. 
given me a lot of heart that this Speakola thing can keep on going. Thank you to the ABC and the China If You're Listening podcast with Matt Bevan. I'll put a link in the show notes to hear the full episode on the Tiananmen Square cable. Thank you, David Bridie, for the theme music. Thanks to you, the listener. Hang in there. Hopefully the lockdowns go away, the pandemic goes away, and all of us can go away, maybe to Queensland. That'd be nice. Certainly I'm in need of a holiday. Best of luck, everyone. Until next time.